The Society of Economic Geologists is thrilled to be hosting the SEG 2024 conference from the 27th to the 30th of September in Windhoek, Namibia, a country known for its spectacular geology and unique ore deposits. You can find out more at segweb.org slash seg-2024 for all the conference themes, dates, workshops, field trips, and more. Abstracts are now open until the 22nd of April. So come join us in Windhoek for what promises to be a geologic adventure in a country that is leading the way in mineral resource sustainability on the African continent. See you there. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Discovery to Recovery, where we bring you geoscience stories from the world of ore deposits. This podcast is a partnership between the Society of Economic Geologists and Goldspot Discoveries. You can listen on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and more. My name is Aisha Ahmed, Senior Geochemist at Tech Resources, and I'm your host for this week's episode. In last week's episode, you heard about Canadian porphyry deposits of the Northern Cordillera. On today's episode, we investigate three different aspects of mineral chemistry, with a focus on its use in porphyry exploration. We'll start with the gap this method fills in the explorationist's toolbox. We'll move on to a case study from the giant Oyutulgoi deposit, where overprinting alteration events lead to microscale compositional complexity. And we'll finish with a reality check from industry on how this technology is actually being implemented in exploration programs today. Our first guest is a legend in the porphyry world. Professor David Cook is Director of Codes, the Center for Ore Deposit and Earth Sciences, and the ARC Industrial Transformation Hub for Transforming the Mining Value Chain, both based out of the University of Tasmania, Australia. I asked Dave to join me today because he's been the leader of several multi-year mineral chemistry projects run through Amira Global, which is a not-for-profit organization that coordinates R&D projects benefiting the resources sector. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Aisha. You've been involved in porphyry and magmatic hydrothermal ore deposit research for a pretty long time, something like 30 years, I believe, if I, if I have to put a number to it. How did you land on this deposit family and, and what's kept you here? Because you haven't always been involved in, in just porphyry research. Uh, actually, Aisha, it goes right back to my uh, BSc days at the Trobe University. So I was fortunate enough to go to a school that was very strongly grounded in granite geochemistry. Alan White was the professor of the White and Chapel theory of INS type granites. So a very strong introduction to, to igneous rocks coupled with the introduction to porphyry systems from my um, economic geology lecturer, Tunis Clark. I can remember him showing us the Lowland Gilbert model for porphyry deposits in third year, and that actually really captured my imagination. And so I asked Tunis for an honours project on a porphyry deposit. So I worked on the Yeovil porphyry copper gold molybdenum deposit in New South Wales for my honours degree. And then I went on from that, and it opened the door to me doing a PhD with Mark Bloom at Monash University on the Baggio District epithermal and porphyry deposits, focusing specifically on the Akupan epithermal and Ampicau porphyry deposits. So that's sort of the pathway I took in. So it's right from the beginning of my academic career in the mid-80s, depressingly 35 years ago. (laughs) I thought I would round down for you, you know. (laughs) All right, but I think what what really distinguishes you from some of the other researchers in this field is 
a real commitment to the application and incorporation of your research into industry. Uh, you've been the project leader on how many Amira projects? Is it five, six, a hundred? Can you describe the inception of the Green Rocks projects in specific and how the partnership was developed with industry for those projects? One of my experiences in my first two Amara projects, the Sediment Hosted Base Metal Deposits Project, really led me to understand it's very important to look from the outside in when you're working on exploration. We were looking at the very distal footprints of giant lead zinc mineral systems. And it was partly driven by the fact that one of the sponsors wouldn't let us work on their ore deposit. We had to go out into the region. <laughs> and that was a huge boon for us because it made us realise that a lot of economic geologists love getting into the ore deposit and looking in detail at the ore and the complexity and the parogenesis, but from an explorer's point of view, they need to understand the most distal signature. So what do the distal footprints look like coming from the outside in? That was sort of the nucleus of the idea for trying to develop a footprints research program in the porphyry space. That project was pitched to industry back in 2003. Several of us, Kerry DL, myself, Glenn Masterman, travelled around the world talking to industry representatives, trying to get industry engagement. We eventually managed to secure seven industry sponsors for a three-year project that started in early 2004. And that was really the inception of our Footprints program. Before we get into the specifics of mineral chemistry and its application in the porphyry environment, Hopefully you can give us the Coles Notes version of porphyry deposit genesis. In thinking about how these giant magmatic hydrothermal systems form, we're really looking at domains where we've got processes operating from a magmatic hydrothermal fluid being dissolved out of a magma, passing laterally and vertically outwards into the surrounding country rocks, interacting with those rocks and undergoing a whole range of changes in temperature, pressure and composition through processes such as water rock interaction, boiling, fluid mixing and so on. So we've got the central ore deposit domain where all the action happens. You've got your mineralising intrusive complex, your potassic alteration, which may get overprinted by silicon, advanced argillic alteration. That's where the ore resides in the porphyry centre. As we move outwards from that, if we go laterally away from the porphyry centre, we move into what we call the green rock environment. And the green rock environment is propolitic alteration in volcanic and intrusive rocks. And so it's dominated by calcium and magnesium-bearing minerals, so proximal actinolite going out to medial epidote chloride and distal chloride. And that's one of the environments we really targeted for looking at the footprints of porphyry deposits to see if we could extend the geochemical footprint through mineral chemistry analysis. When fluids are migrating upwards and outwards from the porphyry environment, we've got an exhaust plume of magmatic gases, maybe brines and low-density liquids, and they're causing profound transformations in the rocks above the porphyry, and we may produce phyllic alteration, we may produce advanced argillic alteration, and we may get the roots of what we call a river cap. It can host high sulfidation mineralization, and it can overlie and obscure porphyry deposits and also intermediate sulfidation epithermal deposits. Mineral chemistry certainly isn't 
a new concept, even it's in its application in the porphyry environment. If you scroll through economic geology, it's filled with studies that use electron microprobe or energy dispersive spectroscopy to analyze mineral compositions. And one of the examples that I found was on biotite and apatite compositions from Bingham uh, that dates back to 1979. But the Amira work has really focused on the application of laser ablation inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometry, which is the mouthful, or LAICPMS, for data collection. So can you walk us through this technique and its strength relative to other techniques? If you look at uh, the power of the laser ablation technique, what it allows us to do that we couldn't do previously is achieve much lower detection limits for a whole suite of trace elements. Now we can get multi-element geochemistry from individual minerals that are getting down well below one parts per million detection limit under optimal analytical conditions. The laser technique also has the power to let us uh, map the deportment of trace elements within minerals, so we can switch between a spot mode where we drill down into the mineral or a line mode where we scan across the surface. So when we use line mode, we can produce chemical maps that actually let us see intergrain uh, variability of trace elements. Really, it unlocks the potential to pick up very subtle geochemical anomalies that are preserved in alteration minerals on the distal fringes of porphyry systems. Okay, so maybe we can dig a little bit into the results from Batu Hijau and the Baguio district. These are results from two pretty seminal papers authored by you and, and Jamie Wilkinson, along with a, a whole team of geoscientists who contributed. But what were the major outcomes of these studies? I'm thinking the chlorite proximeter equations and fertility results. The two papers you refer to were publications that stemmed from the first two Amira Footprints projects. The 2014 paper really summarised some of the key findings of the epidote work from one of the study sites, the Baguio District of the Philippines. And it really was a, a proof of concept of the use of epidote in mineral exploration. We we're pleasantly surprised once we started to gather the, the laser ablation data in P765 and compare it across deposits that there were signs of fertility in the data. Now, the two big questions for mineral explorers in assessing a mineral district are, is there a big deposit in this district? So that's the fertility question. And then there's the vectoring question. Which way do we go to find it? So the epidote work we did in Baguio and, and also in other places such as the Koyawasi district and Badahijau in that first project was giving us signs that the biggest porphyry deposits flux the most metals out into the green rock environment. So the bigger the system, the larger the footprint, but also the higher the trace element anomalism of the pathfinder elements. So that was a, a really pleasing outcome. It looked like mineral chemistry was giving us an early assessment fertility tool that mineral explorers could apply in, uh, in their exploration of new districts. When Jamie got into the chlorite and started to analyse it, we were really pleased to see very systematic chemical changes in the composition of chlorite with respect to distance from the Badahijau deposit centre. It was really quite surprising. We, we expected chlorite to be a nightmare because it's such a, such a grotty-looking mineral, but it, it actually has 
quite systematic changes in a number of trace elements. Some increase systematically with distance from the deposit centre, others decrease systematically from the deposit centre. And so what that means is when you ratio elements with opposite behaviour, you can actually amplify the signal to noise ratio in the laser ablation data and you can come up with what we call proximity ratios, which allowed us to use something like the titanium and strontium compositions of chloride to calculate a distance from the heat and fluid source that is the battery HR porphyry deposit. So it gave us an answer to the second question, vectoring. We need to talk about paragenesis here for for a moment because all the discussion that we've had so far has been in a relatively simple system where you've got one generation maybe of epidote and chloride. But of course, many porphyry deposits are characterized by multiple alteration events. And our next speaker um, is going to go into this further with a case study on Oyotogoi. But one of the outcomes of the, the P1153 project was the ability to successfully date epidote using uranium lead. So what does absolute dating of epidote contribute to the mineral chemistry explorer's toolbox in terms of paragenesis? Now, the reason we went to try and do epidote dating was to try to resolve that question of can you discriminate between different ages of hydrothermal activity in a given district? So can we start to unmix the overlapping populations produced by multiple intrusive centres? Because porphyry districts often have multiple porphyries. One might be big, others might be small. With the work at Resolution, it was really pleasing and surprising to find out something brand new about the Superior District where where the Resolution Porphyry is discovered. Josh was sampling green rocks in the distal fringe of the Resolution system where it's exposed in the rain truck, kilometres away from the deposit centre. And we just kept seeing epidote, actinolite and chloride going on and on and on. We're going, what's going on here? Why Why is this green rock footprint so widespread? So then we, we looked at the epidote and, and looked at its uranium and lead content, realised it had a favourable ratio of these two elements. So we tried dating the epidote directly and we got really nice ages and we found out there was a whole lot of mesoproterozoic epidote in the Superior District. There's some hydrothermal event associated with the emplacement of the diabase sills into that uh, proterozoic sedimentary basin that has produced a different style of green rock alteration. And the resolution footprint, and resolution is a laramide porphyry, was overprinted on top of another alteration event that had occurred a billion years before. So once we had the dating, Josh could deconvolute that by going into uh, multivariate analysis of our epidote and chloride data, building a training data set where we knew the ages of certain epidotes of proterozoic age, certain epidotes of laramide age, and that really cleaned up the footprint of the resolution porphyry. And we could see that with the chloride data, we could still see resolution four or five kilometres away from the deposit centre, but we needed that dating to really unravel that complexity. Epidote has a lot of common lead, so it's not always an optimal mineral to date, but you can discriminate under optimal conditions, things like Cretaceous from tertiary um, or Jurassic. Sure, but particularly I would imagine in areas that have experienced regional green schist metamorphism, um, being able to distinguish that from younger porphyries, as you indicate, is uh, is a real 
boon for for mineral chemistry and the and the application of it. Yes, that's that's true, Aisha. That if if you're able to date the epidote and get confidence that it is part of the magmatic suite, that is great. We've also found because we've worked a lot on on regional metamorphic assemblages that you can also discriminate them from trace element chemistry. Regional metamorphism, if it's truly metamorphism, just reconstitutes what's present in the existing rock. So you don't get high concentration of pathfinder elements in epidote chloride from regional metamorphism. Whereas a porphyry deposit, the key thing is you're looking at those pathfinder elements, the exotic components that are added by a fluid to the hydrothermally altered rock. So you can use a combination of trace elements and dating, and really there's huge power in going into the into the multivariate analysis of the data sets to really pull apart your different types of epidote and chloride. So, so um, you know, discriminant projection analysis, PCAs, these are these are great tools to bring to bear on the on the chemistry space. And a lot of our research at the moment has has gone into that world. We have talked about all the exciting parts of mineral chemistry, the vectoring, the fertility, the dating and unraveling of multiple alteration events, but it's not all rainbows and butterflies when it comes to mineral chemistry. I've heard you say many times it's not a silver bullet, Um, and there are challenges in our current understanding of some of the factors that can control these compositional changes. So I'd like to discuss with you why we don't see same geochemical patterns at every deposit and what do geologists need to understand and what kind of context do they need to have in order for this tool to be applied? Sometimes we can get false positives. So for example, a batholith that once produced porphyry style mineralization but is now deeply eroded could still have alteration minerals within and around it that record a fertile signature. So first of all, look at the geologic context. Am I in an environment where we're getting small intrusions in a background of wall rocks or am I sitting down in a big granite? Okay, now occasionally porphyries show up in granite batholiths like at Highland Valley, but often the porphyries are popping up on the side or they're sitting in the roof above. A second problem we have is with regard sampling to back. It was one of the biggest challenges is to lift the gaze beyond the deposit and to think about just how far do fluids move in this mineral system. The green rock stuff works best when you come from the very distal environment into the proximal environment and you can see the chemical gradients and the changes in the mineral. So so getting the sample distribution right is really critical. That can be challenging when you're looking undercover and, of course, you've got to realise that you use this technique in conjunction with the standard techniques that we discover porphyry deposits. Boots on the ground, map the geology, map the alteration, geophysics, all those tools are tried and true and find porphyry deposits. Mineral chemistry should be added to that toolbox, but its best capacity in the green rock environment is to add that distal footprint, so to give us signs of life from far away. So the Amira projects, they've been going on for about 15 years, is that right? 17 years. 17 years. And there have been so many positive outcomes. The research is still ongoing with the P1202 project finishing up this year. Where do you see the research going and what are still the burning questions uh, or are there burning questions? We're coming to the end of our fifth Amira Footprints project in 
the end of June 2021. We have put out to industry sponsors the concept of the sixth Amara project, which is getting good traction. We're really interested in trying to step across scales. So the mineral chemistry work we do is at the very micro scale. Laser ablation technology is not readily available to mineral explorers, so they don't want to have to use laser ablation unless there's absolutely no other option. And then it's laborious in terms of data acquisition and data processing, but the data can be very powerful and can give you new knowledge that you can't get from any other tool. And if we can go from rock scale to drill core scale to district scale to getting all the way up to ASTA and really deconvolute the signatures, then that's a huge win to the minerals industry. So working across scales to actually expand our capacity of, of district to regional scale exploration, that's that's one of the themes of the next research project. Well, as an industry member, I certainly look forward to you accomplishing all of those research goals. And thank you very much, Dave, for joining us uh, today on the SEG podcast. Thanks, Aisha. It's been a real pleasure to be with you. I'd just like to say before I go, a big thank you to all of the research team members over the year. This program of Footprints Research has involved more than 100 academic scientists and also collaborating consultants with, with groups at UTAS, at Imperial College, Lakehead University, Universidad de Austral, Colorado School of Mines, Monash University, and our MDRU as well. So I'd just like to say thank you to all of them. And, uh, you know, they really unlocked a new deep and exploration tool. Our next guest is Lisa Hart Madigan, exploration geologist and geochemist. I first met Lisa back in 2017 in Hobart at an Amira sponsors meeting. She presented preliminary findings on her work characterizing the propolitic alteration at Oyotokoi. Her research there has certainly evolved since 2017. In fact, she just completed a postdoctoral project on the subject, and I'm really excited for her to provide some insights into the hidden complexity of the propolitic environment. So tell us a bit about your history and what motivated you to go back to school after spending time in industry. Yeah, so I really enjoyed the problem-solving aspect and the layers of data that you add during each exploration season and each time you're building on the interpretation, you're learning a little bit more about deposits. So that sort of aspect is what I enjoyed and understanding how these different layers of data can be useful. PhD is something I'd always wanted to do. So I really wanted to do something that was very much applied, something that you could really add value to an exploration project. I'd seen that Jamie Wilkinson from the head of the Load Group in London had been advertising PhDs. I went to discuss the opportunities with him and he actually went through with me a lot of the work that he'd been doing as part of the Amira project on the Green Rocks propolitic alteration and developing these exploration tools that can be used in the early stages of exploration to really rapidly reduce the size of exploration targets. There were some really good links to industry. Rio Tinto, who had been involved in the Myra project from the start, Paul Agnew's group, and were looking to test some of these uh, tools on one of their well-known world-class deposits, which was Oyotolgoi. And I happened to be around at the right time and 
really interested in it. And that was how I got onto that. So many experiences that I've had as well in geology. It's just about the right time, right place. And I I also know firsthand that the Amira project or the Amira projects are really good at linking students with industry and really keeping the focus of the projects applied. You know, they have to be academic because they're PhD projects and research projects, but really keeping at the front of mind how these tools are going to be used and applied in industry. So we're working at Oyotolgoi, what an opportunity. My partner, Sean, also worked in the Gobi Desert many years ago, and, and he described a really beautiful, vast, you know, open landscape. So can you tell us a little bit more about the setting of Oyotolgoi? Yeah, so Ayatolgoi, like you said, is in the South Gobi, and it's a porphyry district that's actually quite old. It's late Devonian in age. And so since its formation, it's actually undergone quite a complex geological history, which includes several major post-mineralization magmatic hydrothermal events. And these occurred in close proximity to the porphyry deposits themselves. So the eight deposits that sit in this Devonian inlier of volcanic arc rocks are fault-bounded and flanked by carboniferous plutons and volcanic arc um, stratified rocks. The biggest intrusion in the area is actually the Campbell granite, which sits to the east of the deposits and is a, one of the largest alkaline batholiths in the world, post-collisional alkaline batholith. So with all these plutons sitting so close to them, the idea is that it's very likely that the alteration halos from these non-mineralized intrusions have actually encroached on and overprinted the porphyry ones. So in this project, one of the main important aspects was to be able to unravel those layers of alteration so that we can still see those useful mineral composition patterns in the propolitic halo underneath that's related to mineralization. Dave spoke to us about advances in epidote geochronology. This was one of the outcomes of the project. And from an industry perspective, I can say we're sorely lacking in the ability to accurately date mineralization, you know, and alteration in the porphyry environment. So I'm particularly interested in the geochronological work that you undertook on on Titanite to resolve some of this complexity that you're talking about. And, And this was recently published in Economic Geology. So why did you decide to go down the route of Titanite dating and what did it help you resolve? The Titanite dating was absolutely critical in this project. And that's because, like I said, these generations of alteration overprinted each other and they weren't easily separated just using textures alone. I looked personally at the different textures using SEM, but it wasn't consistent to be able to say, well, this type of epidote is associated with a carboniferous or where we see epidote with this mineral, then that's something to do with the Campbell granite. It just wasn't that consistent. So the titanite was really important because it was one way that you could wholeheartedly take one of those samples and say, well, all the titanites in this sample I've measured are all coming back or or giving me a, a tight late Devonian age. So I'm quite confident in it. This is a good example in this rock that it's a it's associated with mineralization. It's associated with these late Devonian porphyries. 
but it wasn't possible to to date alteration in all of the rocks. It's time consuming and there's not always enough titanite or big enough titanites to analyze. So the idea is was to basically get a training data set and to use that well-established training data set to characterize the compositions of epidotes and chlorites in those different generations of alteration and then apply that to a much wider set of samples. If you go to the South Gobi, you'll see there's very little exposure. So things that might be mapped as carboniferous or plutonic, carboniferous plutonic, may or may not be from that age of rock because it's difficult to constrain because there's no continuation. It's very difficult to see. And there's also so much faulting that's gone on. The stratigraphy there is just shuffled up completely. So you could potentially see packages of Devonian rock that haven't been seen before elsewhere in the district. Yeah, so if we can just take a, a, a step back here to talk about titanite a little bit more. So titanite, we have magmatic titanite that can form, and it's also part of the, the propolitic alteration assemblage. How did you discriminate um, between those two before you were dating? So it was actually quite easy to see that the titanite was co-genetic with the propolitic minerals. There were veins sometimes with titanite with the epidote or titanite with chlorite. And also quite commonly what you would see was titanite with epidote and chlorite pseudomorph primary mafic minerals. And so seeing this close sort of relationship between them, it was quite obvious. I did see some igneous titanites and they had much higher uranium content and they were absolutely huge compared to the other titanites that I'd been looking at. So these were maybe 100 microns and they were euhedral, whereas looking at the hydrothermal ones, we were yes. the boundaries really, we were looking at things from 15 microns maybe to 30 if we were lucky. That kind of in-depth analysis and textural analysis as well prior to undertaking mineral chemistry seems to be pretty important. All right, so tell us about some of the results uh, from this uranium-lead dating of titanite. Yeah, so with the titanite, what we were trying to resolve basically were the three main phases of alteration. What we found was out of the 20 samples that I dated, there were only a handful of those that had uncertainties that were narrow enough to be able to resolve any of those single events. Most of the samples had such large uncertainties that they straddled one or two or even three of the events, so really weren't particularly useful in pinning down one particular event. So luckily there were six samples, two from each um a magmatic event that we could use as a basis of our classification of the epidote compositions or chloride compositions associated with alteration of that age. You've got these three alteration events that span it's about 100 million years, right? From, from start yeah. to finish? Yeah. With the error so big on titanite, is there kind of a minimum gap that you need between alteration events in order to, to measure them? If you had um, titanites that happen to have a really good amount of uranium in them, 
or they were large, so you could get a very large spot size on them. You could get much better results. It is possible, and there has been work done on titanites before that from mineral deposits that have better, much better, within a few million years, resolution of the date. So it's difficult to say, and I think the best thing you can do is to try you use the titanite geochronology to apply a classification onto the to different generations of epidote. The outcomes from the classification are that you have these three generations of propolytic minerals, epidote and chloride, that have been classified as Devonian, which are Sin Oyotogoi mineralization, Carboniferous, and Permian. So I'm curious now as to whether your Devonian epidote and chloride showed a different geochemical signature than the other alteration events, and whether you were also able to see some of the same spatial patterns in mineral chemistry, particularly chloride, that was published back in 2015 by Jamie Wilkinson and others. Did did that work in your Devonian subset? Yeah, so it worked really well. With the chloride, interestingly, once you stripped out the carboniferous and the Permian or the Campbell granite-related alteration and you were just left with the porphyry-related mineralization, you really saw nice gradients of the titanium-strontium or magnesium-calcium ratios that came out of that 2015 paper, Wilkinson et al. paper. So, yeah, it worked quite nicely. You could definitely see that the Devonian epidotes were more enriched in general in some of the key pathfinder elements like arsenic and antimony and also in cobalt and they also tended to have higher arsenic antimony ratios whereas the carboniferous was more depleted in general and the Campbell granite had relatively low antimony and arsenic and cobalt as well. But this is sort of relatively because the variation of concentrations of different elements in a single epidote is is huge. So you really need a lot of data to start to be able to pull out some of these patterns. Next up, we're going to speak to Tim Ireland to get an industry perspective on the application of mineral chemistry. But I'd like to get your your perspective as well, because you were in industry for many years before, and you would um, have a pretty good idea of how this could actually be um, applied in kind of a a grassroots exploration program. But now you've also been on the research side, and and you understand the the nitty gritty and and the complexities of the method. I think at this stage, it's any information is good information. I think it really works well when you're working in an area where there's known deposits, because you can do a really targeted orientation study of that province and so you know what the chemistry and you know what what's going on there and you can apply that regionally around that particular district quite well whether you can take what you've learned from there and just you know you know use the same elements and the same classification and use it somewhere completely different I think that may be difficult but if you think about most areas that are prospective already have known mineralization in those areas so there's always something you can look at first to basically use that as your training data set. That's a really great perspective Lisa and thanks so much for having this conversation with me today about your work and this really practical application of titanite geochronology to unravel some of the complexity in the propolitic environment. 
I wanted to round out this episode by getting an industry perspective on how Green Rock's mineral chemistry is actually being applied. The question I wanted answered was whether the tool has been successfully integrated into the workflow for porphyry exploration. My name's Tim Island. I'm the principal geologist, officially speaking, for generative exploration at First Quantum Mineral. I think geology is something that runs in your family history. Can you give us some background on that and kind of you as an exploration geologist? Where have you been? What have you done? How did you get started? <laughs> how, how long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> I, I very definitely come from a geologic family. Um, I grew up in Adelaide in South Australia. My dad was an exploration geo. My stepfather, who I, I actually spent more of my childhood with, was very high up in the in the South Australian Geologic Survey and ultimately was the director of the survey for a while. And he's a he's a palynologist by trade. We used to joke that, that dad did geology that required a hammer and my stepdad did geology that required a shovel and a microscope. Um because <laughs> Nev was always bringing home you know bits of un, unconsolidated mud. You becoming a geologist was predetermined, maybe even <laughs> <laughs> before you were born. I got a job as a field assistant with an exploration crew. I, I hmm. I kind of had it in my head that that was, by that point, by the end of, end of high school, that that's what I was going to do. So I thought, oh, let's go and give it a roll for a year and, and make sure that it's what I think it is. Um, and I did that. It took a while. It took 74 letters back in the day when you wrote hard copy letters to the exploration managers of, of companies. 74? Um, 74, yeah. That is determination. Yep. Um, and I pinged off a, an introductory cover letter to a whole bunch of them. I ended up working with CRA. I went from from that gap year I, or the working year. I then went to Tassie, did an undergrad with an honours looking at the MacArthur River ZX blood zinc deposit. Um, I didn't want to become a perpetual academic, and so I fished around and and, and got myself involved in, in some industry work. I left Cookie with a bit of an instruction, and I said, "Hey, look, I I don't know anything about porphyries really. Basically, if you're a district scale porphyry project somewhere exotic, give me a call." Well. I thought that would be hard enough that I I wouldn't hear from him for a very long time. Um, turned out he came back to me, I think it was about three years later, and said, well, you said you wanted X, Y, Z, here it is. And so that became the the project, the Kaiwasi district project that was my PhD. Um, and the, I guess the scope of the project was to... Perhaps in contrast to a lot of porphyry projects or a lot of mineral deposits projects that look at a single deposit, the the framing and the scope of, of my PhD project was to take on the whole district and and really at its core get at the question of why are these deposits where they are at a couple of different scales. Ultimately it it became it became a big mapping project, really. A lot of volcanic stratigraphy um, and quite a bit of geochronology. And that really underpinned um, the drawing of a of a far more detailed chronostratigraphic map of the host rock environment than is normal in a porphyry environment. It, it sounds as though it was very boots on the ground, kind of fundamental geology work. Where did epidote and chlorite mineral chemistry mm -hmm. come yeah. in? Yeah, the, the codes team were very aware that if they didn't provide a really solid geologic baseline before they charged in and did the, the mineral chemistry, then whatever their mineral chem findings might be, they'd be open to, I guess, criticism and doubt that that 
either you could achieve the same thing by conventional means or that whatever they were observing was some unconstrained function of post-rock composition or other unknown unknowns. And so that was that was actually where my project was the basis and then other members of Code's team did the bulk of the mineral chemistry work in the Kodwasi district, ultimately using my mapping and geology as the as the underlying geologic lie detector, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> At the time when they first sponsored the projects, First Quantum um, wasn't known as a traditional porphyry explorer. They were more sediment-hosted copper focused. So why did the company first become involved? The mineral chem involvement is ultimately part of a bigger, I guess, push by First Quantum starting about 2012, 2013, to be much more aggressive in the porphyry space. There was a very deliberate sort of recognition that if you wanted to be a big copper player, you had to do porphyries and you had to do them pretty well. And so that provoked uh, a burst of, of hiring that included my introduction to First Quantum. Um, there are lots of motivations to be involved in a project like that, but one of them was very definitely just to help ourselves learn quickly and so give ourselves access to researchers who knew a lot about the rocks, give our, ourselves and our, our, our geologists access to information and exposure through the prism of sponsors' meetings and field trips just to see more rocks, give ourselves a fighting chance of having seen enough rocks that we could do porphyries um, at a reasonable level of competence. And the mineral chem yeah, is part of that, that broader picture. I've been a strong proponent of it um, basically from the get-go, although I'm somewhat sceptical of the need to use microanalysis as the, I guess, the, the way to get at understanding mineral chemistry. At the current price point, and it hasn't changed a hell of a lot in 10 years, it's not really acceptable to need to laser a couple of dozen rocks on every project you want to look at. So we've worked pretty hard at First Quantum trying to take the learnings of the academic research and turn them into bucket chemical tools that, that we can use that mostly avoid microanalysis if we can help it. And then we lean on the microanalysis in certain circumstances where we think it's called for. I, I do love this idea, though, of taking tools that are developed through research in academia and making them fit for purpose for industry. All right, Tim, it's, it's time to cut to the chase here. And for me to ask the burning question, um, from an industry perspective, do you think that these Amira projects have delivered? Yeah, well, if we take that opening, the opening gambit of Amira P765 in, at the beginning of 2004 was really just to document whether there were chemical, like systematic chemical changes in the composition of, of the major, the ubiquitous alteration minerals, um, outboard of, of porphyry systems. And I think the answer to that is, is an unambiguous yes. With so much data collected as part of the Amira projects from dozens of deposits around the world, we now have this pretty comprehensive data set with which to evaluate green rock signatures and identify similarities and differences. And there are differences. The elements defining geochemical gradients, the size and geometry of those gradients, they're not identical between deposits. So I suppose what I'd like to hear from you is how this lack of consistency affects the predictive capacity of the Green Rocks technique as an exploration tool. The kind of rules of thumb that I, that I promote within First Quantum is that 
where porphyries are hosted by their parental stock, um, then that you can, it's easy to imagine that large body of magma changes the thermal gradient in the environment in which you're working. And so the green minerals are not necessarily going to point you at the porphyry because it's not necessarily the hottest thing. You know, it's not necessarily either the only place that fluids emanate from. So I think the green mineral chemistry works very well where you've got uh, preserved volcanic stratigraphy and the and the parental plutons are effectively hidden. So if we look at the the places where the, the techniques were defined, uh, notably Bartohijal, but also the Cotabossi district, the parental plutons are, are effectively absent. We, like They don't crop out. We don't know where they are. Um, they're somewhere down there underneath the porphyry. And in that case, you look at the map as a almost a two-dimensional slice through the crust, and the chemistry of the minerals is arrayed in a radial fashion around this, this point of heat and chemistry, which is the porphyry. That works reasonably well most of the time. But as soon as you get down into this environment where you're seeing the thermal impact of the parental stock, then I think then all bets are off in terms of the vectoring. And so we can kind of make that, that relatively early, I guess, assessment of whether we think the green minerals are likely to work for, from a vectoring standpoint or whether they're likely to be a bit complex because of the nearby plutonic activity. Yeah, let's continue that line of thought for a moment. The when. When is this tool used um, in the exploration workflow? Is it early on as part of one of the, the key generative tools, or is it something that's used as a kind of last gasp if everything else has failed? When we use it, uh, we tend to use it early and see its utility mostly in helping us decide very early on whether an alteration system is likely to be fertile or not. And so in that in that regard, it, it kind of takes a place alongside the magnetic rock, whole rock chemistry, a la Bob Lauchs and, and co-workers, um, and perhaps some of the Zirkin chemistry stuff that's, that's becoming more popular. Um, but these are the bits of evidence we would use to help convince ourselves that the system had the capacity to make a good deposit. Can we steal victory from the jaws of defeat through the, the prism of mineral chemistry? Nah, don't think so. <laughs> Frankly, don't, I don't think that's the right way to use it. Um, because I think if, if the other lines of evidence are telling you already that the project's not working, then unless you've really grossly stuffed up all of those other lines of evidence, um, then I doubt the mineral chemist is going to save you. My experience has been that when the geologic world organizes itself to concentrate you know, fluid and energy and metal in one place, then, then all, the, all the tools should fire in the same place. Um, and if, it's, if you've got four lines of evidence telling you it's not working, the mineral chem is not going to help. So I don't like its application of that last gasp um, approach. Have you applied it any more or less in the undercover sense i mean that's kind of how the tool has been promoted is you know we're on the distal fringes perhaps the rest of the system is undercover but you're able to sample this distal alteration halo yes that's okay. that's what it's for that's where it comes into its own to give you confidence to to carry on exploring and pushing undercover when the available outcrop is or wasn't wasn't exciting enough to provoke anyone else to step off the cover in the past or step off undercover. 
it's been common practice in northern Chile or in the in the Basin Range, anywhere where you've got fertile tracts of land covered by relatively young gravels, to run around the, the, the exposed ranges looking for alteration, and then once you found some, step off the step off the, the edge of the outcrop and start drilling scout holes. Um, and I guess the well in the, in the Coyote district, the Ukina deposit, which I believe after Kubota Blanca was the next one to be found. It was found more or less like that. Some of the phyllic alteration cropped out with a few secondary coppers associated with a little bit of phyllic alteration. And then you got to a, an unconformity with one of the Miocene ignimbrites that covered, covered over what's now mostly the open pit. Um, and so the guys then were happy. They had, they had alteration they recognized. They had copper. And so they ran some IP, showed that there was a big electrical anomaly under the ignimbrite, drilled it, game over. But it takes a lot of confidence and courage to do that, where the only alteration you have in the in the in the exposure is propylitic rather than mineralized phyllic alteration like they had at Kina. Have you adopted the hydrothermal mineral geochronology aspect of the Green Rocks projects in order to target magmatic hydrothermal systems of a prospective age? We do lots of geochronology. Um, we. Our experience with epidote has been that most of the times we would like to date it, it doesn't have enough uranium to, oh, to be amenable to dating. Yeah, so that's it. Almost becomes one of those one of those things where yes, it's a neat it's a neat analytical technique, but the practical reality is it's not datable often enough to be particularly useful. You just have to look for more scarns. Yeah, well, I was just going to say that there might be environments, and hell, if you were if you were in the underwilers baffle part of the world, and so there's you know, lots and lots of contact scans around the place, then you know you might find that that it's more widely applicable in in that district. But on the whole, yeah, epidote struggles because of its its general lack of, of radioactive components. You know, there are some who suggest that whole rock geochemistry is really all the porphyry explorer needs to characterize the distal alteration halo, define anomalies, and target. In your experience, do the epidote and chlorite geochemical footprints associated with a porphyry system extend beyond the whole rock anomalism? To that question, I really don't think that the mineral chem footprint is geographically bigger than, yes. than the whole rock footprint. But it's really a different question. So as you laid out before, the scenario where you don't have many rocks to work with, where you have some some limited exposure in a in a quebrada across a, a pampa in Chile or along a valley in, in, in heavily wooded or forested terrain in New Guinea where you can't go anywhere other than the valley floor. Um like in that physical exploration scenario, then the mineral chem is fine and you don't have the opportunity to build a nice, a nice geochemical survey of the whole area, and so I don't, I don't see the two things as fighting with one another. I, I see that if you've got access to rocks or soils from a wide range of area that covers your whole project, everything's residual. Then maybe you don't need the green mineral chemistry terribly much from a vectoring standpoint. It might still be useful to you from a, from a discrimination standpoint. Is the system fertile? Do I think it's a great system? Do I think it's a poor system? But in that environment where you've got good access to residual materials to go and map, then yeah, I don't think you need it particularly much for vectoring. I don't think it adds a hell of a lot over conventional chemistry. 
but that's not its job. Its job is to help you out when you can't get access to places very well. Do you think that this research has gone uh, you know, as far as it can? And if not, what are the questions that still need to be answered? Background turns out to be horrendously messy and, and not, not particularly well studied to date. Um, so it's something that First Quantum do quite a bit of that you know, we might identify a porphyry in terms of that's quote unquote anatomically correct, you know, that has that has a potassic zone and has A veins and B veins and D veins and filler alteration and propylytic organized outside of that. We look at the mineral chemistry of those systems really quite deliberately to try to differentiate, you know, to try to help us use the mineral chem to understand could we have told the difference between a great system and a and an effectively barren or very low grade one through the prism of the mineral chemistry. The range of, of background and, and the, the sheer um, population of, of other places, other geologic environments that make those minerals is, is very broad. And until we really understand background a lot better, then it's restricted to use as a supporting line of evidence rather than something that will really sway your decision making. Um, what we're up against is other hydrothermal things that are not fertile. And we see them throughout magmatic arcs. Your project around Yarrington was was part of an attempt to include nearby rocks that also threw or would potentially have thrown false positives. Um, I know that Sean Parker at the MBAU has got a new project coming up that will deliberately take in a lot of non-porphyry or failed porphyry type uh, research sites. That's that's a really good initiative. That's that's the stuff that needs to happen. Thanks very much, Tim, for, for joining us today. Really appreciate all your insights from an industry perspective on Green Rock's mineral chemistry. You're very welcome, Aisha. Thank you very much for the invitation. And yeah, I hope I've shared something that's useful to, to all, all the explorers out there. Thank you for joining us on the Discovery to Recovery podcast. I'm Aisha Ahmed, one of the hosts of this podcast series. You can access past episodes on segweb.org backslash podcasts. Be sure to follow the SEG and Goldspot Discoveries on Twitter, LinkedIn, and other social media channels to get notified when the next episode comes out. A huge thank you to Dave Cook, Lisa Hart Madigan, and Tim Ireland, who generously give us their time and insights for this podcast. This podcast episode was written and produced by myself, Aisha Ahmed of Tech Resources, with editing support from Ann Thompson, Nicole Doucette, Hallie Kievel, and Sam Weatherly. Our theme music is Confluence by Eastwinds from their album Confluence. You can check them out at eastwinds.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening to this week's episode, and we'll catch you again next week.